Hey, welcome back this week to week number three of the book of James. Last week was a tough week because uh, we dealt with the first half of chapter one, and there are so many important concepts in there that, honestly, each of those concepts should have deserved their own message, and we had to put it all together for the length of the series. And today is going to be a little bit like that as we finish chapter one. Chapter one is filled with just the concepts of uh, so many different things that we need to understand. So I'm going to give you the meat, and we're going to just cut out all of the fluff and just really dive right into the meat. James is a very practical book. Uh, James asked the question, if you have had encounters with God, like, it, like if you are born again follower of Jesus Christ through the gospel, then what would your life look like on the ground? What would your life look like in a very practical way? Does your belief, does your faith make a practical difference in your daily life? And that's what James is getting to the heart of. Last week we ended with verse 18, very powerful verse. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth. And the word birth, I said, is one of the key words to the entire chapter. Chapter one, the word birth, uh, really uh, says so much in that little word. But I want to highlight on something right now. It's, it says, we've been giving birth through the word of truth. What this passage and this verse is saying is that if you have a very real relationship with God, you will also have a very real relationship with God's Word. And that's what James goes on to talk about in the rest of chapter 1 that we're going to look at today. In other words, born-again Christianity. There's no other Christianity than a born-again Christianity. You have to understand we are born through the Word of truth. So we are connected to God's Word. We're born from God's Word, which gives us a very unique and special relationship with God's Word. So with all of that said, Today's title is Grace-Empowered Obedience to the Word. It's critical that we learn how to obey God's Word, but this is not a law of something that we have to uh, work out on self-discipline or willpower. It actually is empowered through grace, and you're going to see that in the chapter. So let's dive into verse 19. I love this. If you have your Bibles, follow along with me. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. What James is painting a picture of is people who are struggling to live out their faith. People who may have been born again, but for whatever reason, they're not seeing their faith activated in a very practical, real-world, daily way. And so the practical question is, if we are born again, if we've genuinely been born again and have dedicated our lives to Jesus Christ, why are we no better than our neighbor who's not born again? Why haven't we been transformed? Why do we still struggle with different areas of our life if we've genuinely been born again? And, and here's what we've got to understand. The thing that brought you new life, that gave you new life, that allowed you to be born again was the word of truth. Now, here's the cool thought. That's the same spiritual force that is embodied in Scripture. So you were born out of the word of truth, which is the same spirit that is behind the pages of Scripture. So the question is, what is missing in my life? Why is there no power to my faith? And the big question of the day is, how do I unlock the power 
that we see in the Word. We see all of this in the Word. How do I unlock it where my life begins to reflect the Word? I'm going to give you some thoughts on doing that today as we talk about grace-empowered obedience to God's Word. Here's the first thought. Number one, if you're taking notes or you, you downloaded the notes or the small group notes, the first point is we have to humbly accept the Word. We've got to humbly accept the Word. What does it mean to humble ourselves before the Word of God? What it means is the Word of God is superior and we take a lower position in God's Word. We humble ourselves under the Word of God, which means I don't look at my life as my intellect or my personal wisdom to be greater or more superior to the Word of God. I humbly accept God's Word to be superior in every way. That what God is saying in his word has to take precedence in my life, even when I disagree with it. That is what it means to humbly accept the word of God. And this is the key to unlocking the power in your life to live out your faith. Look at verse 21. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word. Humbly accept the word. And here's the key word, planted in you, which can save you. And I'm going to show you how the Word will save you from all sorts of very painful situations you can wind up in life where you lose your freedom and you lose privilege and you lose benefits because you violated God's Word. When you humbly accept the Word that's planted inside of you, it absolutely has the potential to save you. Now, this word planted is very unique in the New Testament because this is the only place in the entire New Testament this Greek word is used. Oftentimes, the words we see in the New Testament is used in other places, and you can look at the other places and see the meaning and get different context. This is the only time this, this specific word planted is being used in the New Testament. And it's a word that means a, a natural growth rather than an acquired growth. Meaning the central truth is organically planted inside of you. It's, it's the born-again experience where God takes his law and begins to write it on your heart. So it's not something you acquire through head knowledge. It's something that God plants inside of you organically. Now, how do you know if this has been planted inside of you? How do you know if you've genuinely been born again? Well, it's the way you react towards Scripture. You see, if God plants His Scripture inside of you, it happens the moment we are born again because we're, we've been given birth by the Word of truth. He plants it inside of us because we're born from it. Then we react to it differently because it's inside of us. It's planted in our DNA or nature when we were born again. Now, let me contrast that with what it means to acquire knowledge. So this is planted knowledge. It's planted deep in my heart versus acquired knowledge. If I read a book on computer science, that's not in me. That, that's, that's me acquiring knowledge about something because I'm reading or studying a book. If I read a book on math or I read a book on botany, again, that's acquired knowledge. James is not saying that God's Word is acquired knowledge. He's saying God's Word is planted inside of us. There's an organic growth. When we study the Bible, it comes alive. It comes alive because it is a part of us. And the way we can tell that we've had this born-again experience is how you react when you get into the presence of 
Scripture. Jonathan Edwards, one of the great revivalists of America back in the 1700s, he made the statement that Christians have a new appreciation or relationship with Scripture when they're born again. Why? Because it's grafted in you. In other words, I was made from this. I was, I was birthed of this word, this, this truth. So as I read the Bible, I realize that I was born out of this word of truth, that it's a part of my nature. Let me illustrate it like this. Emile uh, Callier was a very famous philosopher at Princeton University. And before he became a believer, before he became a follower of Jesus Christ, he set apart to create a book on his life. And so he got a journal, and every time he read something that impacted his heart, every time he uh, came across anything, a song, a lyric, a story, uh, a wisdom principle, a truth, he, he would carefully write it in this journal, the things that mattered to him, the things that impacted him, because he said, one day I'm going to sit down and I'm going to read the book of life. And this is a book that's going to be able to read me because it, 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 was, it was so key and instrumental at different moments of my life. And I'm going to go and reflect on it. And, and it's going to bring me back to who I am. Well, years later, he sits down under a tree and he pulls out this journal to reflect on his life, this book that's supposed to be able to read him. And he begins to read it and he's frustrated because as he reads, he's like, why in the world did I think that was important? Why did that speak to me? How did that make such an impact on me that I wrote that down? That, that doesn't make any sense to me now. Why? Because he changed. He changed. The book of his life couldn't read him. It was only after he became a Christian that he discovered the Bible. And here's what he said. The Bible was the book I was looking for all along. He said, as I read the Bible, it speaks to me in every season of my life. It speaks to me in every circumstance of my life. It reads me, and every time I look into God's Word, it is alive. It is a book that has the ability to read me. Why? Because we were born from the Word of truth. So before you become a follower of Christ, before you become a Christian, before you're born again, the Bible is information. That's all it is. It's information. You read it like a history book or, or, or a poetry book or any other book. It's just information. It's head knowledge. But after you're born again, after you've been given birth by the Spirit of truth, the Bible becomes food for nourishment. It becomes water for thirst in your life. Now, I know the question that some of you are thinking right now, and you're asking, and you're saying to yourself, okay, pastor, are you saying that I have to believe absolutely every single thing in the Bible to be a Christian. Is that what you're saying? And the answer is no. What I'm saying is that if you are born again, if you are a Christian, you will believe absolutely every single thing in the Bible. Now, those are very, very different. They're not the same. I know, I know they may sound the same, but they're not, you don't have to believe everything in the Bible to be a Christian. But if you're a Christian, you were born of the word of truth, you will believe everything in the Bible. Because here's the thing, you can, you can believe in God, and you can be a pretty good person without having a complete trust in God, without trusting everything in His Word. To humbly accept God's Word means to believe it to the point of complete trust, even when I run across parts of the Bible that disagree with me. Even when I get the parts of the Bible that offend me. If not, 
then you can believe, but you can't really know God until you humbly accept the word of truth. It's like the movie The Stepford Wives. I've used this before, but if you ever saw the movie The Stepford Wives, it's a terrible movie, a terrible premise, terrible story, and it's all about a group of guys in this little gated community who got tired of their wives, and so they killed their wives, and they created robot versions of their wives who were perfect in every way. You know, all they did was stay at home and do the dishes and take care of the house, and every time the husbands asked them anything, it was always, yes, dear, and and there were these robot versions of the wife who were just perfectly submissive and perfectly obedient and did whatever the husbands wanted them to do. Unfortunately, what a lot of people are doing today in Christianity is they're creating a version of a Stepford God. They're creating a God that will never disagree with them. They're creating a God that believes everything they believe. Think about this. If God only tells you what you already believe and God never contradicts you, to make no mistake, what you've done is you have created a God out of yourself. You have a God that you have a step for God, in other words. We have to humbly accept The word, even the parts we don't like, even the parts that are offensive, even the parts that, and again, I'm only telling you this if you want to activate the power in God's word to live, and you're going to want to activate it because I'm going to show you the result of it at the end of this message. Here's the second point, obey the word, obey the word. So we humbly accept God's word, and then we obey it. So it's not enough to just accept it as true, accept it as right. We actually got to live it out. We've got to obey it. It goes on to say in verse 22, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Don't just listen to it and deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror. And after looking at himself, he goes away immediately and forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently... Intently is the same word that the, the, the Greek language uses when Peter looked into the tomb after the resurrection. Peter looked intently into this empty tomb. Whoever looks intently into the perfect law, the perfect law, that gives freedom. God's law gives freedom and not just looks at it, but continues in it, obeys it, does it, not forgetting what they have heard but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Now, I want you to look at something. James, the author of this letter, Jesus' little brother, calls the Bible. Look at, look at how he describes the Bible. He calls it the perfect law. The perfect law. To which some people think, well, I thought, you know, the Bible is not just law. The Bible is poetry. Uh, the Bible is wisdom. The Bible is history. The Bible is uh, uh, prophecy. There's lots of different parts of the Bible. The law is just one part of the Bible. But James says, no, 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 all of it is the perfect law. And let me show you this, because even Jesus in the gospel quotes the Psalms, quotes the Psalms. The Psalms is not part of the law. It's not, it's not you know, one of, the, one of the writings of Moses. The Psalms is poetry, and Jesus calls it the law. What is James and Jesus both telling us? They're saying every part of the Bible, every part of the Bible is normative for us. Every part of the Bible shows the normal 
Christian life. Not just the commands, not just the Old Testament law, but the poetry, the history, the prophecy, the wisdom. All of it is the perfect law. And a godly person, somebody that's been born of the word of truth, delights in God's law and wants the law, wants God's word, wants the Bible to direct his or her life, their entire life, their entire life. Those of us that have been born again, we want the Bible to direct our life even when it disagrees with us. In other words, we love to have God tell us how to live our life. We, we love to submit, to humbly accept and obey God's word. So a Christian, a born-again Christian is someone who says, I no longer want to live the way I want to live. I no longer want to determine how I live. I want somebody else to determine how I live. I give up my rights to decide how I want to live. I put myself under the authority of God's word. So let me ask you a question. Do you read the Bible or do you let the Bible read you? See, there's a lot of people who read the Bible. I like this. I don't like this. I'll skip over that. I'll spend a little bit more time over here because it feels good. As opposed to letting the Bible read you and the Bible look into your life and say, I like this. I don't like this. Let's work on this. Let's, let, let's deal with that. Do you read the Bible or do you let the Bible read you? You see, the mark that God has changed our heart is we like it when God tells us how to live our life. Now, I know exactly what's about to happen. We are in a head-on collision with the culture that we live in today. We're in this collision of who, who has authority over my life, the Bible or me? In other words, you know, I hear people all the time in the culture we live in, they say things like, you know, the Bible has nice things to say, but only you can really decide what is right and wrong for you. You can't have some book written thousands of years ago deciding for you what's right and wrong. You have to decide what's right and wrong for your life. But James says, no, 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 no. This is the perfect law. It's not just normal. It's not just good. It's not just nice. It is also perfect in every way. What does that word perfect mean? It means that there are no part of the Bible that we can throw out. There is nothing in the Bible that we can say in our culture in 2020 is outdated or antiquated or no longer relevant or no longer applicable. You see, in our modern culture, we, we have this attitude of, I like parts of the Bible, but there's parts of the Bible that offends me. Now, anytime I talk to someone who they say the Bible offends me or, or I'm wrestling with that or I don't like it. It's typically one of two things. Uh, first off, you ask the question, well, what offends you? Like, what do you not like about the Bible? I've heard people say, well, the Bible teaches polygamy. <laughs> okay, where does the Bible teach polygamy? You see, what happens is sometimes people get offended because they think the Bible is teaching things that the Bible is actually not teaching. They say, well, Abraham had two wives. Well, what if that's not a good example? What if that's a bad example? I mean, Abraham did a lot of stupid things. He lied, he cheated, he stole. I mean, there were a lot of stupid things that the Bible did. The Bible's not teaching us to do those things. It's showing us how stupid they are. So the reality is there are a lot of things in the Bible that it uses as a bad example to show us that don't do this. This is, this is not smart. The Bible doesn't teach polygamy. 
God actually said, a man shall leave his uh, parents and be united to one wife, to, to his wife, not multiple wives, one wife. So God never taught polygamy just because, you know, the fathers of our faith were polygamists. So make sure you're not seeing something that the Bible is not actually teaching. But, but here's, here's the real point and here's the real challenge for the culture that we live in today. Even after you interpret the Bible correctly, there are a lot of things that us modern people don't like about the Bible. But what I want you to understand is it's all based on the culture of where we grow up. Your culture affects you way more than you realize. And that's why we like certain parts of the Bible, but we don't like other parts of the Bible. Let me give you an example. If you grew up in, in, in a family-centered kind of Eastern culture where everything is about the good of the community, everything is about the good of the whole, it's not about individual rights, it's about the collective good of the community, then when you read parts of the Bible that say, don't have sex outside of marriage, that makes sense to you because it breaks down a community. It's not good for the whole of the community. And so that makes sense. You agree with that. It's easy to accept that. But in a very similar community, when you have a lot of warring between villages and raiding villagers will come in and kill uh, your family and your friends and, and take property from you, then when you see parts of the Bible that talk about forgiveness, you don't like that at all. Like, like I, don't, I don't accept that. Why? It's all based on the culture you grow up on. Let's contrast that with California. We live in a culture where we love the concept of forgiveness. Yes, that sounds so good. That sounds so right. That, that feels good in a culture that we live in today. We should be loving and accepting of other people and forgive. But at the very same time, if you talk about sexual morality in our culture, we're like, no, 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 you can't tell me that I can't have sex before I'm married. I mean, what are you talking about? That totally goes against everything I feel and believe. All I'm trying to illustrate is we're more influenced by our culture than we possibly understand. So if you can't accept the full authority of the Bible because there are things that offend you, then again, it goes back to that Stepford God issue that you're dealing with. Because think about it like this, just logically for a moment. If the God of the universe is real and he really spoke in the Bible, like the Bible is really his word, then it would absolutely, just think about this logically, it would absolutely have to offend every culture in the world somewhere unless there is a perfect culture in the world. And last I checked, there's no perfect cultures in the world. Every culture in the world has issues and has problems. So if that's true, then God would have to offend them somewhere. So are you saying that if it is really God's word, he would never disagree with you? Because that's what a lot of people are getting at. If you really look at your logic, like, I like this, I don't like that, that's out of date, we know more thou, what you're really saying is that God would never disagree with you. And how arrogant is that? And, and let me get to you the real reason why we submit to God's word, the real reason why we obey, the real reason we humbly accept it. It's rooted in this question, is Jesus the actual son of God? Yes or no? Well, if Jesus is the actual Son of God that we have given our life to, then we submit to God's Word because He submitted to God's Word. Read, read the Gospel. Jesus quoted Scripture more than anything. So either He is the Son of God and He submitted to it, so we submitted to it because if He, as the Son of God, submitted to the Word, then we obviously should submit to it, or He's a fake and a phony and you shouldn't buy into any of it at all. 
Which leads me into my third point. If you humbly accept and you humbly obey God's word, here's number three, you will be transformed by the word. This is where the power comes from. This, this is where you see something beginning to take place in your life. You humbly accept it. You obey it. You continue in it. All of a sudden, it starts to transform you from the inside out. So how do you know if this process is taking place? Well, look at verse 26 and 27. Those who consider themselves religious. So those who consider themselves to have this active faith in God and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless. So this is living faith, is what James is about to say, is this. And James is not saying you do these things to become a Christian. He's saying if you are genuinely born again, these things begin a process in your life. Doesn't mean it's overnight. It's a journey, but you see these things begin. To look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Two things, James says, you will see in your life that will determine whether your religion and faith is a sham or whether it's genuine and real. And all James is doing is summarizing the prophets. Like if you go through the prophets of the Old Testament, they always talk about two things, the poor and morality. Caring for widows and orphans, James says. Keeping yourself from being polluted by the world. And this is how you know. If you really believe and experience the grace of God, all of the prophets said this is the way uh, you'll live your life. Read Isaiah 1. Isaiah 1 talks about caring for the poor and the hurting and the neglected and then living, uh, living sexually pure and living with moral standards. Amos 2.7 outlines these two things. And here's what I want to get at. The Bible always keeps these together. The Bible doesn't separate these two. They go hand in hand. The way we care for the poor, the way we care for uh, the neglected and the abused and the disenfranchised of our society goes hand in glove with the way we live out our sexual morals. We're shaped by the Word of God, not by the world that we live in. Now, now let me illustrate the two contrasts here, because we, th this right now, uh, as polarizing as America is, you see this contrast very, very clearly. Now, let me explain it like this. I watch liberal news outlets, and what do they talk about? They talk about uh, racial discrimination. They talk about social justice. They talk about caring for the poor, the hurting, and the neglected in America. But when it comes to sexual morality, it's, hey, we're going we're gonna to let anyone's sexual preference go. Whatever they believe sexually, that's up to them. That's their choice. You see how the world is separating these two things? But then you watch conservative news outlets, and what you see on conservative news outlets is, you know, we're against same-sex marriage, and we're against abortion. But then when it comes to really helping the poor and the disenfranchised and the people that have been oppressed, it's really nothing more than lip service. Again, the wisdom of the world is separating these two, and what James is doing is bringing these two together. We see it in churches. You have liberal churches in America that are all about social justice and compassion for the poor, but the very same churches will say, we need to accept people's sexual lifestyle. Then you go to conservative churches, and they talk all about our sexual purity and morality and pro-life, but then when it comes to the poor, it's a lot of lip service. You see, the mark of how we know that we're genuinely being influenced by God is these things are being pulled 
together when the ideologies of the world are separating them. And honestly, this is one of the reasons why I love our church, because we're passionate about freedom. We have freedom small groups in our church where it's all about we're going to live out the morality that God has for us. We're going to get free of issues that hold us back. But yet the outreach side of our church, the work we're doing in Mexico, the work we're doing for the homeless, the work we're doing feeding hungry people in our community, what's beautiful about Coastline is we're not separating these ideologies, we're pulling them together. So how does it work? Well, let's go back quickly. I have a couple minutes. Uh, I want to try to get through this quickly. He talks about a mirror. So let's go back and read about the mirror. Do not merely listen to the word, so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do it What it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. There's something in the human heart where we really don't want to see who we really are. We don't want to see the truth. The human heart tends to forget the good and the true, and it's because of our sin nature. It's because uh, of the sin that we look at, we can't see the truth of who we are. An extreme form of this is anorexia. And let me just use anorexia for a moment to illustrate this. Somebody who who struggles with anorexia can look in a mirror, and they could be a size 8 in reality, but they look in the mirror and they see a size 18. And yet so many of us do that spiritually. We look in the mirror and we don't see the truth about who we are. We look in the mirror and what we see is condemned, sinner, broken, rejected, addict, instead of looking in the mirror and seeing forgiven, loved, accepted, grace, Jesus did it on your behalf. What James is saying is the key to making this work is seeing the truth about who you are. If you want to obey the word, if you want to accept the word, then you have to look in the mirror of the word and see the truth about who you are, that you are righteous because of what Jesus did for you. And it's only when you see the truth that you can walk away and do it. But if you forget the truth of who you are, you're going to struggle to do any of this. Again, it's what John says. How do, how do we, the key is grace, how do we love God where we want to, we, we love God so passionately where we want to obey his word? Well, First John, we love because he first loved us. When you see his love for you, that's why it's grace-empowered obedience. We have to see ourselves the way God sees us. So as we come to a close, let me say this. This is really, this whole process that I'm talking about tonight is really what I do as a preacher. The first thing I do is I want you to rationally, uh, intently look at God's word. Like That's why we show you things in the Greek and we show you little things here. And then one of my goals as a preacher is I want to frustrate you with conviction because I want you to see yourself where you're currently at, see God's word and realize something's out of alignment. But then I want to bring you into alignment by teaching you how to see Jesus, teaching you how to see grace so you actually have the power to be in line. Because obedience is important. Obedience is important. And there's two ways to fulfill God's law in our life. You can keep the law perfectly or you can pay the penalty. The truth is we couldn't do either one of those. Jesus did both of them for us. And so I want to end with this. Willpower is not the point of this message. Willpower is not going to help you accomplish this message. The more I see myself for who I really am, the more I'm going to obey. The more I obey, the more I become who God made me. And the more I become who God made me, the more free 
I become. Look, look, let's go back to verse 5 for just a moment. Whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom, freedom, and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Here's the result of it. Freedom. Freedom. So the question is, how free are we? And the problem is we live, we're a product of the Enlightenment age, and we define freedom in negative terms, and you have to see freedom positively. Freedom is not the absence of restrictions. And again, that's the way we define freedom. Freedom, I have to be absent of all restrictions if I'm truly going to be free. Think about it like this. If I go park my car on the road, and one side of the road is free parking, and the other side of the road is a red curb, the truth is I'm really not free. I can only park on one side of the road. If I was truly free, I could park anywhere. You see, we look at restrictions as a negative thing, but the truth is restrictions bring you into freedom. God's law doesn't take your freedom away. It brings you into freedom. The greatest illustration I can give you for this is a fish in water. A fish in water. You see, if the way we define freedom as being absent of restrictions was true, then a fish should be able to live on land and water to be truly free. Because, because if the fish was truly free, it could live on the land. So grab the fish out of the water, throw him on the beach, and see, see how much he enjoys his freedom. I mean, no, very quickly, that fish is not going to enjoy freedom at all. Why? Because he's not free if he's not restricted to the water. You see, what real freedom is, is being restricted to your design. Think about your car. Think about an owner's manual. You know, you may say, well, I resent the restriction of having to get an oil change. I don't want to get an oil change. I want to save money. I resent the fact that I've got these restrictions in the owner's manual that says I've got to get an oil. No, you don't have to get an oil change, but guess what? You're going to lose freedom in that car very, very quickly. It's the restriction that actually gives freedom. And so here's how I'm going to close. The Bible is our owner's manual. The Bible says you must forgive. You must forgive. You are restricted as a Christian, to being someone who forgives. Why? Because if you don't forgive, it destroys you. If you don't forgive, you lose your freedom. If you don't don't forgive, it eats you out from the inside out. The Bible says don't have sex outside of marriage. That's a restriction. Why? Because when you do, you lose your freedom. It creates wounds and hurts and scars in your life, and it takes your freedom away. It doesn't give you freedom. So please understand as we close, restrictions... Don't take your freedom away. Obeying God's word, obeying God's law doesn't take your freedom away. It gives you freedom. And the only way to truly do it is grace. You violate your owner's manual, you lose your freedom. You submit to the Bible, you walk in true freedom. I wish I had more time to illustrate that. I'm a couple minutes over tonight. I know we got to jump into some questions. So let's dive into it, Greg. All right. Uh, This is really powerful. Product placement. Book of James coffee mugs. <laughs> Spectacular giveaways. And so, okay, I, I love this because this really is um, just a huge culture challenge. Yeah. Right? And so let's, uh, let's start with where you ended, which is, which is freedom. Yeah. Because that's a really, really tough thing for us to, uh, to understand. And I know you just went through it, right? But can you, can you speak more about how our design and the restrictions of our design lead to freedom. Well, again, let's go back to the fish. A fish is designed with gills. A gill on a fish is designed to produce oxygen out of water. 
We have lungs, which it doesn't work for us when we're underwater. Our, our, our lungs don't produce oxygen for us underwater. They produce oxygen when we're in air. We're in, you know, outside of water. So a fish only has freedom to enjoy and live his life to its fullest potential if he's restricted to his design, which is living in water. Okay. He was designed to live in water. So... To really discover real freedom, we have to study the owner's manual on how we were designed. Because when we get outside of our design, we lose our freedom. We lose our freedom. We begin to do things that violate our design. And when we violate our design, we lose freedom in different ways. And we end up penalizing our life and not enjoying our life. If freedom means to live life to the fullest potential of what you were created to live, then you have to restrict yourself to your owner's manual. Mm. Just like your automobile. You know, you may resent the fact that there's restrictions on an automobile. You have to put gas in the tank. You may say, well, I, I hate that restriction. I hate that restriction. I don't want to spend the money on gas. I just want to drive my car. Well, you don't have to spend money. You don't have to obey that restriction. But guess what? You're not going to drive the car for very long. When you run out of gas, you're not going to have any more freedom with that car. That car is going to be a giant paperweight on the side of the road somewhere. So to, to really enjoy the freedom of that car, you have to restrict yourself to certain things to maintain the car. And, and that's all the Bible is. It's not a book of a bunch of you know, restrictions to penalize our life. It's a book of law that when we obey the law, not out of legalism, not because we're trying to earn anything from God, but we obey it because we understand this is the owner's manual for the way I was designed, and if I restrict myself to my design, then I'm going to enjoy my life to the absolute highest level of potential. And, and, and so that's really what it comes down to, is, is real freedom is restricting yourself to your design. So good. I mean, think about Michael Jordan. <laughs> Would he be Michael Jordan if there weren't restrictions in basketball? Meaning, if there weren't lines, if there weren't hoops, if, if you know, I mean, because at the end of the day, for him to play basketball, he's restricted to the fact that he's got to get this ball through that hoop. That's a restriction. And if he was free, then he could play basketball however he wants to play. No hoops, with hoops, without hoops, with out of bound lines, without out of bound lines. But under those circumstances, he would have never made millions of dollars. And that's, that's so good because when we look at our restrictions and when we look at the rules in the Bible, we don't really see all the different ways that there can be a fallout, yeah. right? And I, I think that's a really good example, maybe because I'm a basketball guy, go Lakers, yeah. <laughs> right? But <laughs> Well, think about it. It's, it's the biggest restriction that a couple of the big restrictions people argue with today. Tithing. I don't want to give 10% of my money to God. Well, don't, but you're only penalizing yourself. Sex before marriage. Well, you know, the Bible doesn't, you know, control my sexual life. If I want to have sex before I'm married, that's no big deal. No, you're going to penalize yourself. It's just like not changing the oil in the car. You may, you may get away with it for a few thousand miles, but there's going to come a point where the engine breaks down because you're violating the, the design of your life. So that's, that's good. So let's talk about that, right? Because there's a question here, what happens if I don't understand the Bible, right? And I think that's a, a really key question because when it comes down to our culture, when it comes down to our design, that's, that's part of the problem, right? And so 
you know, can you talk about that a little bit? What happens if someone really is trying to understand their design, but they don't really understand the Bible? Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, the, the big ones are not that complicated. I mean, how do you misunderstand thou shalt not murder? Mm. How do you understand thou shalt not commit adultery? So the big ones are not that complicated. When you get into the fine print of the Bible, that's not going to totally shipwreck your life like the big ones. Mm. But again, it's not, it's, it's not, when people wrestle with, you know, with me as a pastor, because, you know, you do a lot of counseling as a pastor, it's not, it's not the issues that are hard to understand they're wrestling with. It's the issues, it's just pure rebellion. They just don't want, they know what it says, they just don't want to do it. So I, I would say to this person, uh, don't, don't live in fear of the fine print, because that, that's, you're born, of the, you're born of the Word. You're, you're born of the Spirit of truth. The Holy Spirit is going to reveal things to you as you go. The clear ones are the ones that you really need to honor because you know, they're the ones that really are hard to misunderstand. Like It's hard to misunderstand sex before marriage. Mm-hmm. It's hard to misunderstand tithing. It's hard to misunderstand committing adultery and committing murder. Those are hard to misunderstand. Those are the ones that people wrestle with more than the fine print. And, and, and there, there's, I, I believe you know, God's grace covers all of us. And so if there's an area of fine print and you're genuinely trying to passionately serve God and do your best and you miss it by a little bit, God's not going to punish you over that. God's going to help. It's like a, a, your GPS. It just recalculates. You're still going to get to your destination. It's just recalculating a different road. The ones where people really shipwreck their life are the big ones where they just willfully rebel. It's so interesting, right? Um, because this, this, this notion of, of rebellion and rebelling against things that you know. Well, what about when you know you're rebelling and you really don't want to rebel? And, and you brought, out, brought up some of the key areas where that happens, yeah. right? Addiction. <clears throat> I lived in addiction for years. Uh, I knew I was in absolute rebellion. I knew I was defying God. I knew I was defying my design. I knew I was living in absolute... I, I was never confused when I was an addict. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and, and I lived with my addiction for many, many years, and I was never confused about whether... I, I never... You know, there wasn't one moment in all of my addiction where I thought, well, maybe this isn't a sin. I knew clearly it was a sin, but I was in bondage to it. That's, that's a little different than, uh, you know, someone who's not an addict who just decides to willfully rebel. Now, for me, now the key for both people is mm-hmm. grace. So the key for me is I had to begin to look in the mirror and see who I was. And when I began to look in the mirror and see who I was, that you look into the perfect law and you don't forget what the perfect law says about you, all of a sudden it starts to give you freedom. It starts to give you freedom because you begin to see. And that's what James is all about. James always shows you who you are first because that's the source. That's the power to do what he's about to say. If you don't see who you are, you don't have the power to do it. It's not willpower. It's about grace. It's about seeing clearly who you are. And so someone who's struggling with rebellion or somebody who's struggling with addiction, they both need to see grace. They both need to see God's love melt their heart where their heart melts and all of a sudden because again it's not about trying to behavior modification mm-hmm. it's heart transformation huge huge and so would you say because there's a there are a couple of questions here that that you may have already answered but i just want to make sure that you have right because part of the problem is again when we're talking about the rebellion when we're talking about uh even the addiction 
right, is that someone may be looking at their lives and the Bible may be reading them and they may be thinking to themselves, wow, I am not transforming fast enough. Is this really happening or am I just deceiving myself, mm -hmm. right? And so what would you... Uh, did you did you pretty much address that already, or what would no, you have to no? No, uh, I mean, yeah, I touched on it quite a bit. Again, it goes back to the mirror. Mm -hmm. But for our church culture context, the best thing you can do if that's your issue is go back to the very first Freedom uh, Week One of the Freedom Small Group and review the Tree of Life to the Tree of Knowledge of Good and Evil. So because if you're struggling to transform, it's because you're reading the Bible through the filter of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, as opposed to reading the Bible through the filter of tree of life. If you've never done one of our freedom small groups, then that's your next step. Do a freedom small group <laughs> because you need that week one class because it's foundational for every aspect of our faith. But I would say if the struggle is I'm reading it, but it's not working, you may be reading it through the filter of the tree of knowledge, good and evil, and not reading it through the filter of the tree of life. And, and that, that first week of freedom is on video, and so we can, if you email us, we can send you the link to that class, so at least you can watch that before you get a chance to join the small group, and that'll help you understand the, how to, because James can very easily be read through the wrong tree, and it'll mess your life up. It becomes bondage, it becomes a weight around your neck, it becomes a list of commands and, and dues, and that's not at all what James is supposed to be. You need to read James through the tree of life so that you're empowered to do what it's talking about, and that's the grace factor. Huge. Huge. And so another thing that I have here is about uh, this word, delight, right? Mm -hmm. Like delight, and, and, and you said it, there, there are times when the Bible reads you and you just do not like what it has to say about you, but you want to change. And so can you, can you kind of talk about that, that, that tension there between delighting yeah. and... Well, I mean, at the end of the day, the Bible is going to offend all of us. The Bible offends me. You know, if, if the Bible doesn't offend you from time to time, you're really not reading it honestly. You're not, you're not reading it, you know, with a pure heart. And if the Bible never contradicts you, you're also not reading it honestly. If the Bible lines up with every one of your political beliefs and, and every one of your ideologies, then you've got a problem on your hands because you created a God who thinks exactly like you, which is very, very dangerous. Uh, because we have to accept the fact that God is much smarter than us. And so there are plenty of places in the Bible where it offends me, I disagree with it, but I've got to humbly accept it. I've got to humbly accept the fact that a couple things are going on. One, I really don't understand what I'm reading, and I'm being offended by something the Bible is not saying. That's the polygamy issue we talked about earlier. Or two, I really do understand it, and I don't like it, but I've got to humbly accept it. I've got to accept the fact that God is right, I'm not, that's why he's God, and if I'll submit to him and trust that his owner's manual is the best design for my life, then I'm going to end up in freedom and I'm going to end up blessed, as it says in chapter 1. Now, I can say, well, you know what, I don't like that. I disagree and I'm not going to accept that. Well, it, it, it makes it very difficult for me then to have a relationship with God because I'm born of the word of truth, which means I have a connection to the word of truth that even when I don't like it, and even when I disagree, I humbly accept it because it's his word. So good. So good. And so 
There was another one here. Uh, pardon me for just a second as I... Uh... Yeah, and, and any questions I don't get to tonight, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to do some of them this week on Instagram and Facebook. So we'll do little one, two-minute videos throughout the week where if I didn't get to every question, you can follow uh, my Instagram and Facebook, and I'll, and I'll put some more answers out there. Sweet. And so I have a, another good one here. Can you illustrate how we know when we've become legalistic with, with the law and this, this perfect law, which is the entire Bible now, which is like just yeah, shattered when, worlds? When, you know, the, the, the real litmus test is, is it a have to or a want to? And yes, there are times where uh, you don't want to do it, but it's still the right thing to do because you're going to mess up your life if you don't. But you don't want to stay there. You want to get to a place where it becomes your heart desire and your appetite. Um, and that happens through grace. So there are plenty of times in my life where uh, I've lost touch with grace. And, and, and I don't know how to word that, where I'm not, I'm not looking at Jesus, I'm looking at myself. I do that often because I'm human. And, and the only way I'm going to be perfect is when I actually get to heaven. So there's times that my humanness takes control, and my eyes come off of Jesus, my eyes get on myself. And I'm faced with a choice. Do I obey the truth of God's word, or do I disobey? Those are times where I obey out of legalism because it's the right decision, and really I'm obeying out of fear because I know if I disobey, I'm going to mess up my life. It's not a good motivation, and, I, and, and thank God, you know, I, I make the right choice. I'm making it for the wrong reasons and the wrong motivation, but I'm making the right choice. But what I have to do is get myself back to the place where uh, I, ask my, I ask myself the question, why didn't I want to do that? Hmm. Why did I wrestle over that? Why was it? Uh, a, why did I have to make a choice? And I, and I, and, and I realize it's because... I'm not seeing Jesus. I'm, I'm not looking at him. I'm, um, I'm not living completely empowered by his grace. And so, yes, there are times all of us have to do it just because it's right. But you don't want to stay there. And you want to question yourself after those times. Why did I have to force myself to do it? Why didn't I want to do it? Why didn't I love Jesus so much in that moment that it was natural? And it's because I'm not letting him love me clearly. So good. So good. And so... That'll be our, uh, our last question. But to, to sum this up, focus on Jesus. Yeah. Focus on how much he loves us so that we love him in return. And we want to do the things that are in the Bible. And sometimes we're not going to like what the Bible has to say about us, but we're going to love Jesus so much that we still want to do those things. Yeah. Sometimes we'll make the right decision because we're afraid, but we don't want to live there. We just want to make sure that we're focusing on Jesus, that we're getting back to his love, yeah. focusing on that grace so that we can really glorify him. Yeah. All right. I love it. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, this was yeah, super powerful. Thank you all for joining us. Uh, for our audience that's here present with us, yeah. thank you uh, so much for being here. And... Uh, Pastor, I don't think we got a prayer from you yet. Yeah, let's Just pray. selfishly, can I get one? Yeah. <laughs> Father, I thank you, God, for every person who's a part of this James journey with us. God, thank you for your word. As challenging as it is, as, as tough as it is for our modern culture to accept some of this, God, let us humbly accept it. Let us obey it and let it transform us so that we can experience and live in the freedom that you have for each and every one of us. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen and amen.
All right. Well, joining us, we will be back here next Wednesday at 730. Again, if you want to join us here in person, uh, coastlinechurch.org, event, register. We'd love to see you here. Thank you so much. Have a great week.